by the power of Castle Hate Skull, I am Hellamark Harley. And I was just informed last week, I said by the power of Grey Skull. Oh my God, one of the most embarrassing blunders that I've personally ever been involved in. And I just want to take this time right now to apologize to everybody who was a victim of that screw up. I take full responsibility for it. Uh, I have not. Uh, a read Jocko Willink's book on radical ownership, but I'm sure he talks a lot about stuff like that. Basically owning your mistakes and taking full accountability and not blaming other people. You know, like I could say like, oh, Casey didn't remind me to say hate skull like he did before this episode. And I might latch onto that and just blame him for the rest of my life. But I'm not gonna do that. I think the old Mark of three months ago might have done that, but uh, you know, new month, new me. So here I am just owning it, um, sitting in the shame of making a linguistic error, um, a, a malapropism, if you will, although I'm not sure if that really qualifies, maybe just a, a slip, potentially a Freudian slip, because this is a childhood reversion, after all, the power of Castle Grayskull. Did I talk about my dad? Used to, he would do this thing, and that's why it's like, also, I used to be a huge fan of He-Man, but he would do that joke that me and my brothers know where he'd go by the power of castle gray skull i am and then he'd say georgie and i didn't know it was a reference to it at the time but it would just crack us up um so that's also like you're, you're working against a lot here mark's brain you're working against favorite childhood cartoon you're working against joke with your dad who's now dead rest in dead space and um i'm just trying to overcome those odds as far as communicating as I intend to on this platform. And uh, there will be no further questions at this time. Thank you. <laughs> All right. It is mildly embarrassing that I messed up. I like, oh, you go, oh, no, no. And I didn't even have to bring it up. I could have said nothing. That's true. I appreciate you did that. Because but I said, hey, don't you, you messed it up last time. Let's right. not and do I that again. I messed it a few times and actually caught myself. Oh, just something about that gray skull just rolls off the tongue, you know? I wonder if they're spitballing other ideas and they're like, Castle Green Skull? Well, Castle, that's actually not bad. By the power of, <laughs> by the power of Castle Purple Skull. Nah. Mm. By the power of Castle Pink Skull. And Black Skull feels like a little bit, it's like, oh, a little too dark, you know? Gray's kind of the perfect, and then, oh, you know, by the power of Castle Gray hair, that would be my <laughs> motto. Right? Am I right here? What do I have first to talk about? Well, this is one of the rare things that people, you know, recommend to me, because people are always recommending me stuff, and it's like, dude, I'm too smart for that. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just recommend any old thing to me, whether it's a book or it's a movie, chances are my IQ is going to be too high for that. And it'll just be like, I can't even comprehend it. It's like listening to ants talk or something, you know? It's like, I, uh, it can't capture my interest because I don't comprehend, uh, <laughs> I don't comprendo. <laughs> uh, I can't comprehend that inferior communication style and it just, it can't register. However, I got multiple recommendations for a show called Killer Sally on Netflix. And in all seriousness, some people will recommend stuff to me and, and you know, look, I'll, I'll take recommendations, but if I feel like you're recommending it to me for a stupid reason, like 
You're like, oh, you're a bodybuilder. You'll like this thing about bodybuilders. And it's like, yeah, not necessarily. Like, I'm not super interested in the world of bodybuilding um, just because there's people with muscles involved. But in this case, I do actually think it's a very riveting story in many ways. And, and one that I'm going to have to rewatch. It's like three episodes of about an hour each. And I was watching it in Houston this past weekend, but I kept like falling asleep, you know, and waking up and like, what, what, what? he killed her, you know, uh, or, or she killed him or he was the abusive one. No, she was the abusive one. So I have an incomplete picture of the entire narrative, to be honest, but, you know, take this as somebody who's like, I've watched the whole thing, but I'm also like midway watching it. And what I do know is that it paints a complex portrait of a relationship where there was abuse on both sides. I think it's pretty, um, you know, accepted that the the male bodybuilder, the husband in the situation was abusive both towards the kids and to his wife to some degree, but also that she was a violent person too and that may or may not have been exacerbated by steroids or whatever you have, you know, I'm always hesitant to use that as a narrative for for men at least, because I find that, you know, men mostly either have anger issues or not. You don't need steroids to be angry and you don't need, um, you know, you don't necessarily turn into a raging maniac the moment you start injecting any form of uh, testosterone or, or derivatives of testosterone. So, it seems as though, maybe for women though, because, you know, like you're introducing a degree of male hormones to this person. I wonder, I wonder if that can cause more drastic changes because there's more to change. There's a greater distance that can be covered, um, you know, as you inject male hormones at just quantities that have never been, uh, you know, in your system before. And one of the things she said was actually funny. She was like, you never inject actual testosterone, but it's like, eh, even that, um, you know, any male hormone that you put into your body, it may or may not be known for having these tremendous side effects. You know, like everybody knows trend and knows that it's something that's associated with roid rage, but um, anything you put in, even the most mild anabolic substance, like you think of Primo or Anavar, they're going to have, they are a male hormone. They're a derivative of uh, DHT or nortestosterone or testosterone itself, it is going to do something, right? There is some androgenic component to it. There's no purely anabolic, anabolic androgenic steroid that's a derivative of these male hormones. You know, growth hormone or insulin are, are anabolic hormones that, you know, will not have an androgenic edge to them, but all steroids have some androgenic component to them. And if you don't think so, then you're just kidding yourself. So, I don't know. I'm not aware of any studies or, or you know, any even like anecdotal opinions on what these things do to women. And it's probably just the fact that you came from, you know, you have trauma in your past or beat up as a kid. Violence is in your family. I have to assume in many cases, that's always the culprit with these behavioral things, right? If you're raised a certain way and you see violence as acceptable or as an acceptable way to, you know, treat your kids with the belt, disciplining them, um, you know, and then you get two people like that, well, it's going to be a recipe for more violence. And I guess the interesting part of it, you know, especially with 
things like the Amber Heard trial and the Johnny Depp, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial is like we're inundated with the idea that men are always the abusers. And even if that's the case, that he was abusive, it, it shouldn't allow, you know, it shouldn't prevent you from also looking realistically and honestly at the violence that the woman per, uh, perpetrated against him or whoever, you know. And, uh, and in fact, that did play a part in assessing how she actually killed him. We'll get back to it later. I'll actually finish watching the entire thing and form more coherent thoughts on this, um, you know, to see if there's any real takeaways as far as like what exactly led up to this. But, you know, it's somewhat morally ambiguous. Um, and the real takeaway for me, though, is the outfits. You're watching them go around, for example, amusement parks. You know, they're at Disneyland. What I really love about these fitness enthusiasts and it's like still present to some degree today but you're this giant bodybuilder right and it's not enough just to be like 250 pounds and like enormously outrageously muscular like you also have to wear a stringer to disneyland and you also have to wear the skin tight lycra pants to disneyland and you have to make sure that everybody can see the striations in your glutes at Disneyland, walking around. And that's always a thing that I guess like, you know, people have often accused me of like courting attention. Um, you know, I, like I think I get attention, but when I look at guys like that or behaviors like that, I'm like, I know like it's not that important to me where I'm like, I would be so over the top or so big. And then it's like, and I also have to like make sure that all eyes are on me in a group of thousands of individuals. And I guess those are the kind of people who become actual professional bodybuilders is they relish in that sort of attention. But it's just hilarious to look at it, you know, in hindsight in the 80s of the, the peak of everything. And also he walks around with one of these on, like the headband, the sweatband is like just this like thin strip. <laughs> it's like, you know, just catching that sweat. And it's like, okay, I can see how it's fun. You know, like it will catch sweat there. But the whole look is just ridiculous and amazing. And... I also realized she was, you know, the woman, the Sally girl was kind of supporting the family. Um, she was the primary breadwinner as he was pursuing his professional bodybuilding career, which, you know, to this day, even if you're just doing contests, you're probably not making much, right? There's a lot of ways to make money as a bodybuilder now. And a few celebs like Caitlin Von Moger, like Bradley Martin, like these, you know, guys who, uh, you know, they may have competed, but they saw like, ah, oh, this is up to somebody else. It's in someone else's hands. And if you have any savvy business instincts or you're a performer, you can turn that into something else on the internet. Um, because if you're just left to like getting sponsorships and winning contests, like that's tough. And you're, you know, this guy in particular had an incredible physique, but you're going up against guys like Dorian Yates. And um, I don't know, is my audience familiar with Dorian Yates or not? He, at the time, he was considered, you know, a maybe the first of the mass monsters, but the size of his back and the size of certain things about him. He, he's known for having a look that was unique, right? So we can, I think by today's standards, like, okay. And he's, there he is back to back with, I believe that's Ronnie Coleman. Um, like they're Photoshopping him in, I guess. And it's, I actually, actually stacks up more than I would have expected. I think 
Ronnie has better like muscle insertions for his arms, for example, a bigger chest, certain things. But like Dorian was gigantic. His back is probably his freakiest body part. At his biggest, I would say to me, he's a little more aesthetic because he didn't quite like compared to someone like Ronnie Coleman because his belly never got that distended. Um, but also one of these practitioners of, of, of hit style training that I've, you know, often promoted on this show here. Now, of course it can lead to injuries. He had some like bicep tears leading up to Olympias where it's like he won with like this torn bicep and it was controversial, but I guess by the judging math, it's like, well, if it only affects this one pose or whatever, you know, sure. He loses that pose and then wins all the other ones. Who knows? That's the problem with bodybuilding. It's all subjective, and they want somebody who's the poster boy of the sport to keep winning. But that's all to say this guy was having a hard time. You can be aesthetic, and that's the weird thing about bodybuilding too, is right? It's like you can look incredible, but if you're not gigantic also in a way that most individuals would consider grotesque, you probably can't win, or I don't know. Maybe they don't want you to win. And, uh, you know, the judges can change the criteria to whatever they want and whatever suits the organizations that are sponsoring this. So that's all to say she's earning bread for the, the family. And how is she doing that? The 80s version of OnlyFans. She's making wrestling videos like beating dudes up on VHS camera and selling those online. So I thought that was like a really interesting portrait into a woman who's like you relate to and kind of respect because she's just doing whatever she can to support her family. This is how much she loved this dude. I don't think that was her dream in life to like, you know, beat the shit out of dudes on camera for money. But uh, she would travel across the country and like she'd have appointments and hotels and different cities. And it was pretty incredible to hear like that kind of hustle, you know, that she was willing to do again, all in support of helping your family so that makes you sympathize towards hey if this guy ends up you know wanting to leave her and, and sh you know after all they built together yeah maybe you'd uh be off your shit too and add steroids to the mix maybe pull out a shotgun and kill him twice or <laughs> shoot him twice and then say he was attacking okay we'll have to come i mean you know i'm gonna get my thoughts straight on this and come back to it but I encourage everyone who hasn't watched it to watch it because it was more compelling than I initially thought it would be. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I'm watching this Killer Sally on Netflix is like, what if they had Kratom, you know? What if Sally had some Kratom to think through her decision? Uh, maybe tragedy wouldn't have struck. And then maybe I wouldn't even be watching that documentary because she would have been able to have enhanced focus and cognition with Happy Hippo Kratom, if it was around back then, it wasn't, but it is now, and you can go to happyhippo.com and use promo code THICKBOY with three C's for 20% off. Save yourself some money. I use the shots, you've seen me take them, you know that I like them, you know that I use them in moderation and feel like I get a great benefit out of them. And I just wish that more people would try these products because more tragedies could be averted if people only went to happyhippo.com and bought Kratom with promo code THICKBOY. You know, I've been called a lot of things in my life and uh, a basic bitch is one of them. And the reason I don't bristle at that accusation is I wear basic clothing. 
a basic long sleeve shirt from Oak and Stone is a cornerstone of my wardrobe. It goes with anything. You can dress it up, you can dress it down. I'm wearing it uh, jeans and Converse right now. Works perfectly. Let's say I threw a jacket over this and went to dinner. People would be like, wow, you looked even better than you did today when you were wearing it with jeans and Converse. In fact, you have the same exact outfit on, just a jacket over the same outfit, and you look so good, and it's all because of the oak and stone clothing. Now, is the material great? Yes. Have I washed this shirt many times, and does it still hold up and look new, aside from the cat hair on it? Yes. Is it uh, made with ethically sourced materials? Is it a small business that could always use your support? Yes. And furthermore, is there going to be a big sale coming very soon? Oh my God, yes. And I think by the time this episode drops, oh, let's in fact go to oakenstoneclothing.com right now and there's going to be something big in store for you. I guarantee it. You won't be upset. You won't be disappointed. This is big. Use promo code HELLA at checkout for an additional 10% off the already big discount that you're going to get. I'm just going to talk about the specifics more this weekend, which will be before this episode drops. But boy, am I excited for you to get some Oak and Stone. What do we have next? Oh, HELLA MMA. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough to meet people who come in this building who are MMA fighters. I find most of them you know, with one notable exception, um, to be fantastic and interesting people. I got to talk to Aljamain Sterling this week and also Mike Perry. Now, I had a little bit less time to talk to Aljamain. Um, you know, I thought he was really cool, really down to earth. I think, you know, he, he's great on camera. He's super, what was interesting to me, because he's also, you know, per the theme of the show, he's somebody who's received a lot of criticism and almost like a flood of hatred because he, he initially, how did he get the belt? He accepted an injury DQ essentially, um, like a, a, a Peter Yan through an illegal knee. Well, then they have to go to the guy, you know, they have to go to Al Jermaine and say, can you keep fighting or not? So it's kind of up to you. And I think there's arguments for both sides of this. Um, you know, Anthony Smith was in a, a position against uh, John Jones, where he got illegally kneed in the face, I believe, uh, kicked in the head. Something illegal happened, and they go, you know, essentially, can you keep fighting? And he was like, yep. Now, in that case, yes, of course, he was getting completely dominated. Um, it was closer in the Aljamain Yan fight, but Anthony Smith did the noble thing when he could have said, I can't keep fighting, and then he earns the championship, and then he gets pay-per-view and the, re you know, like there's all these things that you have to consider. You're, you're in that moment giving up potentially millions of dollars, right? Because you're either a UFC champion or not, and everything that comes with it for the rest of your life, nobody can take that away from you, uh, even if you never defend it once. So even if he was faking, you see why Aljamain Sterling would have taken, you know, uh, or said that he can't keep fighting. But also, I do think it was legitimate, you know, uh, knee to the head. <clears throat> What's really cool about hearing him talk in real life, he seems really grounded. He's aware of the criticisms that people have against him. 
And he'll even say, like, I was losing the fight against Jan. Like, you know, I made some mistakes and it went this way and it went south. And then, you know, but obviously he corrected those things because he came back and, and beat him in a somewhat dominant fashion. And hearing him assess his opponents was really interesting, you know, and hearing him talk about the possibility that he could lose. I was just like, wow. You know, he'll talk about Sean O'Malley and be like, oh, yeah, could go one of either two ways. And, and I could he could catch me. And I can get knocked out and this and that. And he's aware of the ways that he can lose. And he's aware uh, of the ways that he can win. And I thought that was really cool and really refreshing because in some ways, you know, the Conor McGregor style of self-promotion is like, I'm invincible. I can never lose. And I'm only going to sort of discuss and excuse, you know, the possibilities for my defeat after I get defeated, right? But in the lead up, you're never going to talk about potentially losing. Um, that was cool. And then talking to Mike Perry, I just think he's one of the most unique and lovable, I'd say. I'm searching for a word there that doesn't sound generic, but I would say I can think of words outside of the word lovable that would describe Mike Perry, but Ultimately, there's like just something about his openness and his way with words. He feels authentic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And when people are authentic and self-deprecate or like speak openly, I guess, because even self-deprecation, that's often more calculated. It's more like I have these set of jokes about myself that I can, you know, like when I'm doing, you know, when I write these jokes for like, hey, that hurts and pretend like these hate. It's like, that's well within this confines of like, I'm making fun of myself physically in a way that isn't actually vulnerable. You know what I mean? It's already out there. It's not like I'm exposing like a secret about myself that, you know, it took up a lot of courage to sort of admit and, and be honest and that actually risks other people judging me for it. And when you're talking to Mike Perry, I feel like you're always on the verge of like getting something where you're like, wow, like, I can't believe you just sort of said that out loud in like a confessional sense. One of these areas was, and then, and sorry, that's also matched by like, he'll do that. And then it kind of makes you believe him more when he's like, I think I can stand with anybody out there and bang. And you're like, I believe it. But also like he did, you know, box Michael Venom page and win. So he backs it up to a large degree, but like, you know, you're like when somebody matches their grandiosity with their vulnerability, I tend to buy in. I guess that's one way of putting it. Um, and that's part of Kanye West charm, for example. Like he's he he can be both grandiose and vulnerable. And I guess maybe that's anybody with <laughs> manic depression, but um in this instance, it was just really Interesting to hear him talk at length and interact with him personally between takes. And here's a takeaway that I wanted to share with you guys. It's all my long-winded winding route to go. He's talking about training. And he's like, I barely work out between fights. You heard this, right, Casey? Yeah. Yeah, he was like, you know, I barely get off the couch between fights. Like, I used to worry about it. And, you know, I used to be like, first one in, last one out. Nobody's going to outwork me. Um, and now... Like maybe I'll run once a week for three miles or like I'll get to the gym and like 
you know, kind of do like an all out work. Like, like when I spar, I go as hard as I can for 20 minutes or like replicate the actual fight that I'm going to be in. And basically what he was saying, you know, and he was like, I'm embarrassed to admit like how much I smoke and drink. Like, I don't even know if I can talk about that. Or like there was some vulnerability about him, like talking about the fact that he still parties and this and that. And it was just really interesting because you can, he does care desperately about winning. Um, but he's a guy who's obviously experimented a lot with like what works for him as you age and you're really trying to replicate actual fight intensity. And maybe this is like more towards your personality too. Cause I feel this a lot too. I'm like, I used to, I told him I used to do swimming and be like, why am I swinging 5,000 yards if I'm going to swim 50 in the meet? You know, why wouldn't I be like repping that over and over and over again at actual game speed? And that's what he was kind of communicating to me is like, I'll do, I'll come in the gym and do a 20 minute workout. And I'm like, well, you're actually onto something when you compare, you know, your intensity to, for example, it's like, okay, I went on a three mile run or, or a three hour run. You know, that is a super long time, but like, let's say you're running at a 12 minute mile pace. Are you gonna be more prepared to fight than the guy who's doing a 20 minute continuous all out sparring session with maybe like, 15 seconds of rest every five minutes or you know however you want to break that up to give yourself like just enough breathing uh room and recovery to to keep going at, at a pace that will leave you completely finished at the end of that 20 minutes i i would go with the high intensity approach right and that's you know obviously been proven scientifically with things like the tabata method that you know a ridiculously low amount of exercise done it all out intensity right not 80 not 90 but a 100% effort in 20-second bouts followed by 10 seconds of rest. And while that's sort of arbitrary, you can replicate that in different ways, but like, what's the total amount of that exercise? It was like two of these sessions a week. So, you know, you're talking about like eight minutes versus they added it up. It's like 120 minutes, you know, 160 minutes of moderate intensity exercise and the Tabata wins. It's insane because on a time in, you know, time in and then results out uh, uh, measurement, you would never expect that, right? And there's, we always think in terms of this corollary of like time always equals, you know, I was in the gym for three, and I always would hear people say, oh, I was in the gym for three hours. And it's like, doesn't matter though, because that's just one variable and the longer you're in there, that just tells me that your relative intensity was probably pretty low, right? <clears throat> and also that you have nothing else going on in your life. If you can spend three hours in the gym every day, uh, you know, you just don't have other hobbies outside of the gym. So it's not impressive to me. It is impressive to hear a guy like that. Again, he went six rounds with Michael Venom Page. Bonus rounds, very exciting. Watching the fight come in here. It was really cool. And I, I hope that he has a resurgence because I think he's one of these guys that like, he was everything that I hoped he would be in person. And I think he's kind of a unique figure, uh, an icon in MMA that transcends, kind of like Nate Diaz, these people who are like, doesn't matter if he wins or loses, but you always want to see him win. And I think he is capable of winning at a high level, but like, I don't think there's anyone else like him. And in part, you know, it's because of his openness, because of his vulnerability, because his purity of heart and his pursuit, you know, you can't help but not root for the guy.
And also his story about being in Russia is insane. <laughs> and you guys will see all that, but like, goddamn, there's a little clip of it online, but I'm like, he, the way he walked through it all, it's like, man, you like, you know, you really didn't know this was going to happen. And like, you, you said he's out there like writing a contract for the fight the next day in, he's in Russia writing it by hand on a piece of paper for the fight. This is like, you know, this portrait that he sets up of the experience is beyond insane. Okay. Okay, <laughs> here we go. You know how how much time have I had? Just uh, as You've I lose track of time. You've been going thirty minutes. Wow, this is the midpoint. The magic of the midpoint in movie making. Here's you know storytelling principles that I think apply to everything. When you watch your favorite movies, mm-hmm. I want you to go halfway through. And this, a lot of times, this is sixty minutes in. Um, sometimes it's just if you take a 90-minute movie, it'll be 45 minutes, but it might lean towards 45 to 50. But are you familiar with the, the magic of the midpoint? Hit me. Okay. The midpoint should set up a situation and a decision by the main character, you know, most literally if you are in a quest type of movie where you feel like you realize you th- it can be a false victory or like a a false defeat or like you think you're going to get and you realize oh we got here and the thing was supposed to be here and then we realize it's like oh my god like this is the start of the mountain you know what i mean but if we measure the distance from here to there it's actually you know we could just turn around right now and you would be totally justified as a rational decision to do so and you know, if you're in a romantic comedy or something, that might be, you know, kissing or sex, probably sex, sex at 60, something that invests you. It forces the main character because obviously the movie doesn't end there. So you don't turn around, but you got to have a compelling reason. Like, oh man, like you got to hit it with like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, we should just, it's, well, it's probably the safe thing to just turn around and pack it in right now. But... And then you want to have like a time pressure, you know, like somebody's like, no, we can do it. Like, you know, this thing's closing and we got to, you know, there has to be some risk involved in getting over the chasm of, you know, right. You come up onto a literal cliff or something and it's like, oh, no, there's no way we can cross that. And then somebody's like, but if we all hold hands and, you know, tie our underwear together. So there has to be a risk in crossing that midpoint to go forward. But then once you cross that, it's like now there's no turning back. Why did I start talking about that? Because that's know. where we are in this episode. Mark, we can end yes, this God. we can end this podcast right now. <laughs> it makes me think of uh, No Country for Old Men when yeah. uh, he finds the money mm-hmm. and then he goes back to his place with the money. Yeah. And then so you know, I'm just going to have a uh, ice cream sandwich. <laughs> oh, it's just a midpoint ice cream sandwich. <laughs> nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. And then he's laying in bed and mm-hmm. so the guy was still alive and dehydrated. And mm-hmm. that he got the money from. And he's like, all right, well, here we go. And like goes to bring the guy water to like save that guy's life. Didn't, you know, need to do that. He had all the money. He's just putting yeah. himself in a risky situation to go back to the scene where obviously somebody's wow. going to be snooping around looking for the money. Mm-hmm. But he goes back, speaks to his character and integrity. And yes, yeah, that's a, then, good, that's a good moment. And then the truck. I mean, I love No Country for All Men. It is a great movie. And again, it doesn't, yeah, so it's like, 
in any great movie you're gonna find something like that because it's just there's so many storytelling principles that are just like of course you know but seeing how truly great filmmakers execute that moment of making you feel like you know because like you're an hour into a movie does the movie need to be two hours you need to make it worth two hours you need to make it feel like oh you had the chance to turn around like oh we're this far like you know there are points where you can be like I don't have to do this but I have a question yes what's the furthest you've personally gone into watching a movie uh-huh. Before you bail, like, because there's like the first, you know, you could give a movie the first like five to eight minutes yeah. and be like, ah, I'm not feeling it, whatever. This isn't what mm. I thought it was going to be, or That's it's too cheesy, question. or it's some dialogue thing tipped you off. Yeah. Like, have you ever gotten to like seventy minutes and been like, no? Like, I, I would have a hard time so thinking of a specific example, but I would because, like, I know how I'm supposed to feel at the beginning of the third act. Mm. I want to feel like there has been a rapid sequence of events set up that are going to, uh, uh, you know, feel like there's a lot happening in a short amount of time and the objective, which has been the objective of the entire movie, but it's now in much clearer focus and we're coming from a point where at the end of the second act, if it's a, you know, typical three act structure with a happy ending, you're coming close to that victory and then you like fall I, I consider it like you know you're reaching for the apple and then you fall down and you land in a ditch whereas you were on flat ground at the start of the movie but you know so you're in a deficit and you have to it's like you, you come up with a plan to come out of that deficit and um reach your goal if i don't feel that that's the that's the longest i'd wait if i know the third act's going to be shitty it's like i can i can and there's no sense of urgency then i can walk away from that but Oh, I mean, I think truly great movies. Name name a truly great movie that has like a bad first ten minutes. You know what I mean? Like a bad first frame, even. Unless we're talking about movies that are like so bad that they're funny. You know, like I'm not talking about like yeah, the room ironic, or like yeah, yeah. yeah. But most of the time, you know exactly the type of movie that's being told within ten seconds because you know, everything is encapsulated in that opening or you're being told what kind of visual language is going to be used. And I remember going to see movies in the theater and especially high, you kind of like, you got the emotion right away. You know, like the best filmmakers can be like, present you with five seconds of something and you're like, I know what the emotional frame of this entire story is gonna be and I'm gonna keep watching because of this like very early promise. What about you, Casey? <laughs> um, yeah, what's that movie with Jodie Foster? And there's like Encounter, or what? Uh, is yeah. it wait, is it about aliens or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is Mike Mike Contact? Contact. Mike contact. was yelling it from the other room. <laughs> Let's see. I was. Uh, what did I say? I was very far into this movie and bailed. Yeah. I remember it being underwhelming because I really had high hopes for like an alien movie that, uh, you know, was going to be. I wanted some bigger path, and I remember the path was sort of vague. It was like, you know. Oh, yeah. good. Well, then I'm glad I got out. <laughs> but it's like. For example, what was the, there was an Amy Adams movie um, that had, to me, one of the smartest payoffs of, like I've ever seen. What's that? Arrival. <laughs> Mike Contact. just Arrival. spitting facts Killing from the other the game, room. Dude. Um, <laughs> 
It's amazing how clearly he can hear everything you're saying. <laughs> I know. I never knew that. I guess I should stop talking shit about Mike on all these podcasts <laughs> I'm doing. <laughs> um, and spoiler alert for Arrival. Oh, I liked this movie. Yeah. And why'd you like it? I don't know. You tell me. Because it starts off on her having a dream, right? Yeah. That ends up being a memory of something that hasn't happened yet. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. these beings, the big payoff is the way that they communicate is um, like, I think the point is they're like able to navigate the fourth dimension. And so backwards and forwards are not relevant to them. So like they communicate like in circles or whatever. It's like information. If you didn't have a start and a finish, right? That was like the breakthrough that she as a linguist is trying to, um, oh, yeah. you know, figure out. It's that these like, you know, they, they communicate without this temporal sense, without this, um, you know, this happened, then this, even grammatically. That's my recollection, at least. I, I feel like that's somewhat accurate. But what that did was, like, it frames this whole thing for, like, the fact that she, like, has, in the end, this thing happens. And it's, like, a framing device for, you see afterwards that she has, like, a kid. And I forget it was like a dream, like, so like she lost a kid and then had this and then the memory, but like it, it, that becomes a metaphor for like, you know, she's haunted by this thing and then like, you know, meets these alien creatures and there's a fulfilling ending in her realizing like the entire time these, you know, these visions were really a memory of something that hadn't happened because, you know, take away before and after and uh memories become you know visions or vice versa totally i'd love to actually read the <laughs> explanation of that movie at some point what is okay uh, we'll get to it like what's the log line what is the actual you know i just said in thirty thousand words what can be said in one sentence okay Let's get off these tangents for a second that I also really enjoy because that movie, it makes me feel warm. That was a movie, that's one where you go, I couldn't have possibly predicted the ending of this movie and it actually felt like it paid off in a way that also gives you this warm emotional splooge, right? That's what movies to me, they, they should always deliver something at the end where you're like, oh, oh my God, this feeling. I wasn't expecting to have that, but it's it's been under my nose the entire time. That to me is a fantastic movie. They have to make you feel something. It can't just be a sequence of events. A lot of people have been asking me, oh my goodness. <laughs> Somebody messaged me today. I don't know how you feel about questions, so I hope you don't mind. When I was in my early 20s, I was skinny as hell. And now I'm 39. Always sits around two or three years ago. I weighed myself and was 330-ish. Now I'm 290-ish, walking around the house for 10K to 20K steps. Going to buy a bench to do sit-ups and dumbbells maybe January. Every three weeks I get testosterone shot from hospital. I noticed I only have to eat once a day, so I was wondering what I should buy to help raise my metabolism. And do you have a site with basic training for poor people? 
can follow. A basic training for poor people can follow. Thanks, and please don't use my name. <laughs> this whole message was, was charming. Not Mike Perry level charming, but pretty close to that. And I always try to, like when people have questions like this, like sometimes I wake up and that's the first thing I see and I'm like, I do get a little annoyed. I'm like, oh, like, you know why? Because I feel, I know I have to answer it <laughs> in one way or another. Like I can't like let a message like this with a, a an obese person asking for basic advice and my thoughts on something, like I can't just let that person go unresponded to. I, can, I cannot respond to a lot of kinds of messages. This ain't one of them. So, what do I have to say about this? You need to gain muscle. People will ask about raising your metabolism. The only way that I'm aware of, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but unless you're taking thyroid medication, unless you're taking clenbuterol, unless you're taking a stimulant like caffeine or Adderall or cocaine or meth, all of these things you build up a tolerance to. There's always going to be a danger and it's a temporary increase in your metabolism or uh, your thyroid functioning, whatever's the mechanism to burn more calories temporarily by raising your core temperature, for example. You build up a tolerance and you can leave yourself in a state of uh, a permanent deficit potentially. You know, I know people have, have, have messed around with T3, the thyroid stimulating hormone that uh, you use it in the wrong way and you might have to take that for the rest of your life, right? Um, the only reliable way to increase your metabolism permanently or semi-permanently uh, while also increasing your ability to do more work, you know, in your workouts is to gain muscle. So I saw a funny video, this, uh, this Australian guy who, who yells at people, you fat fucking slopes. Uh, I, <laughs> I forget what his handle is, but it is like great, like insult, fast paced, you know, workout advice stuff. And you ask yourself, what is the goal of any of these things? If, you know, like you're already walking around. So if you're already doing 10,000 steps a day, Burning calories from exercise should be somewhat sufficient unless you have an arbitrary weight goal. Like, okay, yeah, you, you want to lose 30 pounds in a month like to win a bet? Okay, do more exercise. But if you're looking to grease the wheels of that entire process and look better, you have to look at what gains muscle, right? So even if you do have a home gym setup, dumbbells, a bench, whatever, you know, something tells me you probably don't do 100 push-ups in a row right now, but if you got to that point or you put your feet up on a bench when a push-up gets too easy, this guy right here and probably you as well are in a position where you can benefit and actually gain muscle from home workouts, you know? Can you become a Mr. Olympia with a, a pair of dumbbells and a bench? No, but most people can gain a significant amount of money simply by changing the angles and the levers of their own body. You mean muscle? Wait, what? You said mo you can gain money. Oh. <laughs> you can gain money <laughs> by following these easy steps. <laughs> if you wrestle dudes on camera, <laughs> you can gain money from the privacy of your own home with just a pair of dumbbells in your cock. <clears throat> so, yes, you can gain muscle. You can gain muscle 
if you're a guy like this, and most people messaging me are like this, and even if you're somewhat advanced, you can always get creative. You can always put things on your back. You can, you know, how many handstand push-ups can you do? If the answer is none, what do you think your shoulders are going to look like or your upper chest is going to look like when you can do 10 of them freestanding and then 10 of them freestanding in a deficit with very minimal equipment, right? Even using those dumbbells to balance on. If you don't die in the process, you're going to get some pretty big shoulders. So the answer to everybody's question, and if you're overweight, sure, you want to lose the weight, but it's always worth it to go a little bit slower and build those habits and take all the steps and then lift, 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 lift and put on muscle because in the long run, that's what makes it much easier for your body to not store fat. Hello, smart books. Is that what I'm calling it these days? Jesus Christ. I read slash listened to this book recently and thought it was great. The Myth of Male Power. Now, I'm always self-conscious about being one of these guys who's like, you know, a men's rights activist. That, that word has gotten, you know, smeared in the media in the past decade. And, you know, men have rights, except when it comes to like divorce court and stuff like that, family court issues where, you know, you might make the case that men get a raw end of the deal with uh, custody and child support, all these things, and, you know, like unfair laws as far as how much you have to pay out on the opposite end. Um, I don't think men lack any rights, but I do think it's still a prevalent idea that like all men have power, right? You'll hear people generally like, you know, you'll hear a hot girl talk about the patriarchy and, you know, male entitlement and male privilege and all these different things without any reference or acknowledgement of like, you know, being a 20 something gorgeous woman in a Western country able to freely express herself however she wants, like the opportunities you get just from that. So, you know, I'm not saying every woman's like that, but all, I've had these conversations with individuals who love to chalk up this sort of like, or generally dismiss me or other people as like male privileged and like you're part of the patriarchy and you have power. And it's like, this was a really interesting book that sort of, goes through all these different scenarios in which this idea is debunked in a very compassionate way. You know, nobody's attacking women. Nobody's, uh, you know, making up these grievances about, you know, how males are so persecuted. But if you go in with an open mind and see all the scenarios elucidated in which uh, you know, men are trapped by societal pressures, by gender roles, by expectations, by choices you have to make and sacrifices you have to make. You know, there's a little quote in here. Um, Warren answers questions like, doesn't the fact that men earn more money mean they have more power? Um, he answers questions like that with, the road to high pay is a toll road. Tolls such as working more hours, being away from our family, being engineers, not artists. Farrell posits that men have mistakenly defined power as feeling obligated to earn money someone else spends while he dies sooner. So, I don't know. It was, it, it's a pretty short book. It was nice to listen to. It was 
coming from a guy, I guess, who used to be like a feminist, and then he would like look. He looked into things, into anecdotes, into studies, and just kind of like came out on the other end, like, no, actually, this is a more interesting and compelling narrative um, to look at the actual details of men's lives and the struggles that they go through, and that's being underrepresented. So. Um, he documents, let's see, that the myth of male power helps each family member understand that genuine power is neither status nor money, but control over one's life. And I love that idea. He documents that virtually every society that has survived has done so by persuading its sons to be disposable, whether in war or in work, and therefore indirectly as dads. And disposability is not power. And that's, I love that idea. And that brings to mind like, my resistance to doing a lot of things has always been like, like, oh, am I like, you know, the way that dads are portrayed or treated, you like, it's like, you're taken for granted. You're going to use up your time, energy, life, resources, you know, to provide for people who won't even give you gratitude potentially on the opposite end of things. Um, and that's kind of the expected bargain for a lot of people. And even in war, you know, it's like it, it, there's a patriarchy and men are privileged, but also like how many men have died in war, you know? So disposability is not power, as he says. And I think that's a really interesting thing to consider in every single aspect of, you know, these gender dynamics. The most serious section I've ever done. Now check it out. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. And he gives a guarantee at the end. He's like, Dr. Farrell gives a 100% refund if this doesn't generate one of your family's most valuable discussions. Um, I think it will. Check it out. Now let's hit a, hit a 180 and get into this is why we can't have nice chips. Yeah! yeah! Boom, 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 boom. The section been waiting for. Hot off the press. This guy's the next Mr. Olympia. Look at that pec development. Look at that trap development. Look at that quad development. Look at that bicep. His biceps are so big, you can't tell where his bicep starts and where his tricep ends. You don't know what country this guy is in, but let's make an educated guess and say Brazil. They all seem to either come from Russia or Brazil, and I'm just never going to stop being fascinated by this because, you know... When people say, oh, Mark, you have body dysmorphia, you know, you're the buffest person on Instagram, but you're still chasing this ideal in your head that you'll never fully be satisfied with. I go, eh, you know, maybe that's true, but at least I'm not this guy, right? At least I'm not injecting 14 gallons of olive oil into my tits and parading around in a Speedo on Instagram and then posting that. Imagine making this video and then posting it publicly so that other people can take that video and share it. I love it. I make no apologies for being fascinating. Ah, ah, and speaking of which, this guy has so much oil in his arms, he can't even eat. You know, so when you're telling me like, oh, I have trouble eating, this guy has trouble eating. He literally has trouble eating. He can't get the food into his face because he's injected so much goddamn, and what's funny is like- Wait a minute. Wait, he, what? He couldn't get it to his mouth, but then he just casually licked his fingers. <laughs> that makes no sense. So clearly this guy has a sense of humor about himself, but mm. like, it's like, what, 
like did you did you inject your arms just to make this joke or like what like what went Watch. into it you know they're like ha ha and also look he how silly then, you look boom, it's like right in his mouth so it's like it's funny it's funny enough to do this little social media video but like nobody on the way up to this point was like hey 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 <laughs> hey you look like a fucking idiot you know that right you're not right you know the entire world is laughing at you anybody who sees this video any human outside of your immediate community maybe i don't know i like who's who's reinforcing this although i have seen videos from these guys in brazil and people will be like dude that looks dope best tux ever imagine doing this though this guy is super jacked but also be like i know i'm gonna go shirtless to walk down the aisle i hope the wife is humiliated you know and that this guy's just like nope i'm doing it can we get a read on her body language and he's doing this little wave. At first, I thought he was doing like like bodybuilders do this. They're like, come on, like clap it up for me to pose harder. I just, I love stuff like this where it's like, it's funny on one end and the guy has an amazing physique, but it's like, I just, I couldn't, like that's something I'd think about and be like, that's funny. Like you're not actually gonna walk down the aisle without a shirt on, right? I hope it's all staged, but also I don't. I love, again, you know, I can, I can measure myself against that person and go, well, see, I'm not the most narcissistic person on the planet. Here's shirtless groom. Um, this happened to me, but worse. I've told the story before. <laughs> this, it's, imagine me doing that in front of like the hottest trainer at 24 Hour Fitness Burbank, okay? But like even harder, it was like, because I'm like, I had a snatch up in the air, you know? Just thinking I'm so cool, like, oh, 185 for five. Threw it down and like threw it and so it's like, whoa, like this guy kind of like plants and then like loses his balance. Like I was thrown head first. Like I was legitimately concussed at the end of this snatch because of the, I forgot I had figure eight straps on. And I don't know if I've been back to that. I probably have, but I can't remember. Like that's going to be the only memory I have of that gym for my entire life. And to that blonde trainer out there, that was just a joke, dude. I was joking around. Like, <laughs> gym rats, once they hit 225 on bench, he's making this big dramatic, pulls out the gym bag, and then gets out the stringer. Ah, amazing. It relates back to what I was saying earlier about this dude in the, you know, in the documentary. Like, we take for granted. I always, because I'll wear stringers like that in the gym, and sometimes I even think I look pretty good. But then I get so self-conscious when I'm wearing it around. It's like, oh, I'm in Jersey Mike's getting a sub just in a stringer, you know. Because I don't even want the conversation to come. Like, even if people are like, oh, your butt. I'm like, oh, man. I No, I, imagine I have a sweatshirt on. This is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I love the people who look like this get the sense of humor about themselves. Like, this guy has the perfect face to be doing this video with the gigantic glasses and uh, you know, for those of you watching or not watching, he's got a semi-down syndrome face and he's like, this is what guys really train for in the gym for Valentine's Day and he's doing like, you know, the finger lift ups to finger the girl and like, you know, slapping the, the heavy bag like he's grabbing his ass and like thrusting with the tricep rope. A perfectly executed joke from somebody where the face is 50% of this joke. Yeah, good and, and you could have like you could have kept that face to yourself. You know what I mean? You could have been like, I know I look ridiculous and I don't want people making fun of me. He leaned into it and he gave us comedy gold. Thank you. This is why I work out at home. You know, 
this guy's like doing rapid fire, uh, you know, hip thrusts on the Smith machine like he's he's banging a girl. What I love about these videos when I see this is like this was shot in an actual gym with eight dudes surrounding him. And it's like you guys have enough time and energy. And I just like it almost makes me nostalgic. Being like, oh, I remember when I, you know, not even in a contest anyway. I remember when I first went to the gym and had the energy to be like, oh, I'm on a machine boning or like now I don't even want to be there longer than I have to. So like that seems superfluous to me. And there just like isn't as much inherent humor of like the things in the gym. So I look at that and go like, aw, like it's it's still fun for you guys. You know, you're like, ha I look what I did that thing on the Smith machine. You got eight dudes around you laughing like, oh, that's very funny. But I don't condescend to it. It's like, that looks fun. I can't go there anymore mentally. This is another category of lifter that I love is like the delusional guy who look he's muscular how did he get to that point right because it wasn't from fake deadlifting 945 pounds and just yanking on it right but like you're doing something right is it just genetics I have no idea but they're always in these crazy outfits and then something's off like they have like knee wraps to do deadlifts and a belt and like military boots and you know this dude walked around and put freaking 20 plates on a bar, took every single 45-pound plate in that entire gym just to yank on the bar from the floor as everybody looked on and thought, this person needs to be committed on a 5150. I love that people like that exist. Because again, I'm saner than him, right? Am I crazy? Or, well, well look at this guy, huh? Thinks he can deadlift 1,000 pounds. This guy also thinks he's benching 13 plates. Look at him. Technically, he's right. He's benching 13 plates. People struggling to bench four plates, me doing 13 pl plates with my legs up. Now, technically, are they 45-pound plates? No. But I love the fact that he found a linguistic loophole there where he could actually set a world record as far as plates lifted on the bench press with your feet up. And he doesn't even have to lie about it. Those aren't fake plates. Those are real plates. Incredible. And again, just a fun time. A fun time had by all of it. Oh, I wish I could be there. The caption of this one is, how are none of these people impressed at this pool party? To me, this is super impressive. The guys on these uh, pool, you know, deep end handles, whatever you want to call them, doing this calisthenics like dance move shit where he's like stabilizing, stabilizing his upper body as he walks up and down an imaginary wall. And it's so smooth it like looks fake. It looks CGI'd. That's how good he is at this. He's humping the air right now. That's how good he is. He's emulating how he would hump the girls at the party and still they're not paying attention. So that makes me think, has he been doing this all night? Is this like the 10th time, you know? And they're like, oh, one more take. So everybody's not impressed. Or are these people just so self-absorbed and so arrogant that they can't give this man credit where credit's due? I don't know. What do you think, Casey? I think that everybody else is kind of just trying to party. Maybe yeah. it's not. Maybe it's not the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, wait, look at me backflip. <laughs> yeah, bro, I'm drinking a Michelob yeah. Ultra. Like, relax. It is cool though. But if you've done it one other time, you're like, oh, cool. Yeah. You're still doing it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do the uh, the sound on this one. Okay. The caption is: When your headphones die and you hear the gym's music, just bails. Just bails on the squat, and that sound is like triggering for me. Like, do, 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 do. This set, like, like I, I, vis I'm like, oh, I hate when the headphones die. 
And it's true when you have to listen, because like it's one thing to work out without noise, but then when you're also subjected to the noise of the 24-hour fitness or whatever and people on top of people talking and all the other, like it's one of the most unpleasant things I think about the gym and I've only like, you know, had this happen a few times. I'm like, oh, my, oh, they're dead. Uh, you know, I don't know. How did I get along before that? I don't know, but I, I relate to this because there's never good music at the 24-hour fitness. There's never good music at any commercial gym. It's never the thing that you want to listen to and it's always too loud. But then when it's not there, you realize this is why there's music that loud. When the power is out, a while back, I remember at the 24-hour fitness, the clanking of all the machines and random talking is also super unpleasant because it's like this cacophony of weird noises. It's like clank, and you're like, ugh, like this, it's echoing and it's terrible. Like you need something to cover that up. Otherwise, it would drive you nuts. You know, 30 machines all going at their own pace. Do we have anything else? We have one more. We have more. So this guy's like, at first, I'm like, ha, ha, yeah, it's funny. The lat pull-down machine isn't pinned down, and he's, like, moving it all around as he does these reps. And I didn't know if he was sincere or not. Like, is he trying to get a lat workout? Does he know it's going to move around? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, he knows it's going to move around. And also, you realize how small this gym is and that there's other people there. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most obnoxious guy in the gym right now. Like, other people are just trying to work out, and it's like, you're just going to, like – bounce the lat pull-down machine all over the gym for fun for this video guy in a low ponytail never rocked a low ponytail what are some of these people saying bro is taking uh hit the machine for a walk that is true a few more reps he's going to bring the machine home yep uh hey guy uh, bro are you you're going to freak out when you learn about pull-ups <laughs> <laughs> that's good but uh, this is again this is always what i try to not be it's like I do like shooting gym content, but like there's this level of self-conscious where it's like, oh, the moment I'm going like, oh, hey, oh, oh, I'm ruining your day now. I'm ruining your day. People think I'm mentally ill. That's where you gotta cut it off. That's where you gotta draw the line. You wanna work out to fight mental illness. You don't wanna work out at a gym and be perceived as mentally ill. So if we can all follow that basic guideline, and also everybody watch Killer Sally on Netflix. Help me figure out at what point I fell asleep during this documentary so that I can pick up because I don't want to watch the whole thing again. I just, I want to get the information that I need and figure out how I should feel about this because it's a complex situation and that hurts my brain to have to take a nuanced approach to something that should be black and white like domestic violence. Help, please.